Please open your Bibles with me to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I have to be honest, uh, 1 Thessalonians is a book that I grew up not particularly liking. Uh, if you grew up in a certain type of tradition that had Thief in the Night films and Left Behind books, you know that 1 Thessalonians is one of these proof texts about uh, the rapture and all of this. And so I grew up sort of being afraid of 1 Thessalonians. But this last year, I thought, you know what, I'm going to keep reading this until I get a sense of what it's about and learn to love 1 Thessalonians. And, and I have done so. Uh, I am really delighted in this letter. And so this morning, as we install two elders, or rather reinstall two elders, um, I thought all the way back maybe in October, I know what passage I'm going to preach on. Of course, the problem is when you know what passage you're going to preach on months in advance, you keep thinking of so much stuff you want to say about it and all the things you love about this passage. Uh, and so there is a risk there. The passage we're about to look at, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 4 through 12, Paul describes the character of his ministry amongst the Thessalonians. Now, at first glance, you might think, well, this is kind of a dirty trick to play, isn't it? Saying, uh, we're installing some new elders, so let's show them what the pros do. You know, kind of like, uh, kind of like showing reels of NBA teams to your high school basketball team and expecting them to do that, right? Uh, but that's not what Paul's doing here at all. Rather, in verses 5 and 6, or rather 6 and 7, <clears throat> Paul says to the Thessalonians, you became imitators of us. This letter is written by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcome the message of the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Then later in 3.7, he says, uh, or sorry, in 2.14, he says, brothers, you became imitators of other churches as well, the churches in Judea, the home churches, the mother church. Uh, and then in 2 Thessalonians, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.9, that he behaved in such a way to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So Paul in 1 Thessalonians, he's not just describing his ministry to show off and say, look how good I am at doing all this stuff. He's saying, here's a model to imitate. Here's a way of life that you ought to live. He's writing 1 Thessalonians within a year of planting this church. And planting a church is setting up a new community, a new way of life. After all, the Christian faith is not only a series of doctrines. There are doctrines that are essential to Christianity, but the Christian faith is a way of life, of life lived before God. And this way of life has to be learned. We're saved by Jesus, and we're taught to live a new way of life. This new way of life is taught through instruction, but it's also learned by imitating models and examples. This way of life isn't something that can be done in isolation. Jesus saves people and brings them into community. He brings them into the kingdom. And every member of this community plays a role. And so this model of how to live together in community that Paul gives us is essential. So Paul gives us an example of his own ministry, but it's an example that provides a model for imitation, a model for our elders to imitate, but really for all of us to imitate. So hear now the word of God, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 through 12. We speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, 
not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This is God's word. In verse 4, Paul sets out a basic goal that ought to be before the eyes of every minister and every elder, and indeed a goal that ought to be set before the eyes of every Christian. He says, we live not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. This can be a frightening reality on the one hand. You can fool men, but you can't fool God who tests hearts. You can put on a good show. You can look respectable in the pew, and people around you might be fooled. But God won't be deceived. And the fact of the matter is, sooner or later, even men usually find out a phony. But this is also a reassurance, friends. You can't make everybody happy all the time. But you're not called to. Your calling is not to please everybody. It's not your goal. Your goal is simply this. To please God. You'll be misunderstood by the people around you. People will think you're doing something out of selfish motives, maybe, when in fact you're not. And yet, they're not the ultimate judge. It is God who tests our hearts. And so it's a reassurance. Now, how do we live out this goal in the Christian life? There's two simple truths I want you to see in this passage. And you can see here after the high water mark of four points, kids, a couple weeks ago that I'm back on track with Pastor Bert. Two simple truths. The first simple truth is this. Where the gospel flourishes, people share themselves. Where the gospel flourishes, people share themselves. What do I mean by talking about the gospel flourishing? Well, note in this passage the recurring references to the gospel in two, chapter 2, verse 2, verse 4, verse 8, and verse 9. Paul's whole ministry was motivated by the gospel. Gospel, of course, simply means good news. So each of these verses could be translated. Uh, in 2.3, we had boldness in God to declare to you God's good news. And in 2.8, we were ready to share with you not only God's good news, but our very selves. And in 2.9, we proclaim God's good news. And what is this good news? Well, uh, verse 12 of our passage, the last verse I read, gives us a summary. Of course, we already heard the good news in, in length in Ephesians chapter 3, didn't we? That Christ Jesus fulfilled the plans of God from all time and that he revealed the mysteries of God, and that he made a way for us to access God's presence. But here in 2.12, we get the gospel in a short summary. It's simply this. God calls you into his kingdom and glory. 
God calls you into his kingdom and glory. Notice this good news begins with God, not us. God calls you. We don't do anything to earn our way into God's kingdom. We don't deserve God's glory. No, God calls you. It starts with God. But it's good news for you. The God who calls you, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians, is the living and true God who sent Jesus to deliver us from the wrath to come, to bring the kingdom of God, to reveal the glory of God. Calvin comments on on this verse, on chapter 2, verse 12. Since our salvation is based on God's free adoption of us, every blessing that Christ has brought us is included in this single phrase, God has called you into his own kingdom. It now remains for us simply to respond to God's call to show ourselves to be such children to him as he is a father to us. Now, this is the good news. So what does it mean to say that the gospel flourishes? It's to say that this good news about Jesus Christ, that it takes root in churches and in individuals. The flourishing of the gospel means it takes hold of people's lives that it shapes your desires, that the gospel rules in your mind. That's what it means for the gospel to flourish. And when the gospel flourishes, people share themselves. Paul says as much in chapter 2, verse 8. Look at verse 8. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul literally says here, we share our lives, we share our souls with you. Paul explains what this means, to share yourself with another person, first by contrasting it with other things in verses 5 and 6. If you look at 5 and 6, Paul says there's three things that we don't do. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, as God is our witness, nor do we seek glory from people. The communal life of the church is not built up and sustained through flattery, greed, or glory seeking. Elders, uh, Albert and Nate and other elders, you know that there are times when it's tempting to flatter people, to say something easy that makes you popular. But what's needed is the truth, not flattery. What's needed is a boldness to speak the truth, even when it's unpopular. And elders, you're not called to this office for your own glory. As Paul puts it in 2.20, at the end of this chapter, the church, this church, is your glory and joy. You don't get glory over and above this church, but you get glory as this church is built up. Greed and ambition in all forms corrupt the ministry of the church. So Paul says what it's not. But then he says what it is. He says when the gospel flourishes, people become like gentle mothers, gentle nursing mothers with their own children. If I understand Paul's image here, it's illustrated well by Exodus chapter 2. Remember in Exodus 2, Uh, Moses' mom had to give Moses up, and she put him in a little ark and hid him in the reeds on the side of the Nile River. And then remember, Pharaoh's daughter found that baby and adopted that, decided to adopt baby Moses. And then do you remember what happened next? Moses' own mother is hired 
to be the nurse for baby Moses. Now, likely any woman who was hired as a nurse would have been kind to baby Moses. And likely if Moses' mother was hired to nurse another baby, she would have been good to that baby as well and taken care of it. But Moses' own mother loves this baby for her own. She not only nurses it, provides for it, cares for it, feeds it, but she loves it as her own. She gives the baby not only milk, but she gives this baby herself and her gentleness. Well, maybe this illustration uh, isn't quite as clear to you, and so maybe another illustration from another sphere. Picture for a moment a cook or a chef. A chef cooks for people all day long, right? But when a chef's cooking dinner for a significant other, for his or her wife or husband, sitting down for a date, there's a personal element that goes into the meal. Sure, they cook good food all day long, but when you're cooking for your significant other, there's a personal element. There's affection that goes into preparing the meal. But Paul's illustration of a mother with her own children is particularly suitable because he focuses on the gentleness of a mother, the gentleness of a mother with her children. Paul says church leaders are not supposed to be cold or domineering, but they are to be gentle like a mother with her children. Sometimes we can think of Paul as being a bit of an austere fellow. And after all, in 1 Corinthians and some of the other letters, he has to be a bit sharp with churches. And the truth does have to be proclaimed boldly. There's no place for flattery. But Paul's own characterization of himself, he says, I try to be gentle among you like a mother with her children. And then in verse 8, Paul develops this image. He says, we loved you so much. And this is why we delighted not only to share the gospel, the good news with you, but our very lives. He delighted to share himself with this church. This isn't the kind of sharing like when you have your kids share a milkshake in the backseat of the car and they keep fighting over who got more drinks and whose turn it is. That's not the kind of sharing Paul's talking about here. No, the kind of sharing Paul's talking about, you can imagine when a young man gets to share a milkshake with a young lady down at Edeline Dairy, right? It's a whole different scenario when you're sharing a milkshake with a pretty young girl instead of your sister or brother in the backseat of a car, right? You delight to share. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He says he delighted to share. He's eager to share his life with these other people. Here's the truth, friends. When the gospel flourishes, people share their lives with each other. The communal life of the church, life together, our lives together, friends, is developed out of individuals sharing their lives with each other. So let me challenge each of you this morning. Are you sharing your life with anyone in this church? Are you sharing your life with anyone in this church? Are there people in this church who share your joys and sorrows? Are there people that know the real you, who know your struggles and your fears and your hopes? Are there people that you can bear your soul to in this congregation? If you look around and you don't see anyone in here that you would say, yes, I have that kind of relationship with that person, then you're not sharing your life as you're called to? Are you sharing your life with anyone in this church? Of course, this doesn't happen overnight. 
And I'm certainly not saying go overshare during the brunch after service and suddenly start sharing your intimate secrets uh, with people you haven't met before at the table. That's not what Paul is saying here. But it takes work. It takes time. Remember, the church is not a passive consumer activity. It's not a spectator sport. This isn't like going home and watching the Seahawks that you kind of sit on the bench and cheer. No. The church is a community of people doing life together. A community of people sharing their lives with each other. When the gospel flourishes, people share their lives with each other. They share themselves with each other. Paul then turns in our passage in in verse uh, 10, 9 and 10. And he develops a second image for his ministry that we're called to imitate. And here we see the second truth of this passage. Where the gospel flourishes, people build each other up. Where the gospel flourishes, people build each other up. Paul teaches this truth by developing the image of being like a father who teaches his children to walk in a manner worthy of God. See in verse 11, you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Here, father, or, uh, uh, Paul focuses on the image of a father being of, like a teacher instructing his children. But notice Paul doesn't just say like a father teaches his children, so I taught you. No, he identifies different aspects of this role, exhorting, encouraging, urging. Think about a father teaching his kid to ride a bike. Maybe you show them how by riding a, a lap or two around the parking lot on a bike, and then you tell them how, right, that you turn the pedals, you need to keep turning. But then once you show them how and you tell them how, you get them on and they start doing it themselves. And what do you have to do? You have to keep encouraging the children. You have to keep saying good job. And you have to comfort them when they fall down and get banged up. And sometimes you even need to urge them and be a little strict with them and say, no, try again. You can do this. There's different kinds of speech needed. Good parents recognize this in all areas of life. But it's easy for parents to fall in a rut, right? Some parents are great at encouraging their children, but they never want to discipline them or correct them. Other parents are constantly scolding their children, but are slow to ever praise their children. But a good parent, it's like a kaleidoscope, saying the right word in in season. Now teaching, now encouraging, occasionally scolding and reproving when appropriate, comforting when needed. Different kinds of speech are needed to be a good parent. And Paul says the same thing about the church, that his ministry is like this, and we're to imitate this. In verse 2, Paul says he declared the gospel with boldness. So he preached the good news, the gospel, to the entire church, like I'm preaching the gospel now. But here in verse 12, Paul says that he exhorted each one of the Thessalonians, each one. So the word of God needs to be preached corporately, but there's also an individual element as Paul exhorts each one personally. Of course, it's only possible in a fairly small church for the minister or even for the elders, to personally exhort and encourage and charge each person individually as much as they need. But remember here, Paul is setting a model for everyone to follow, for everyone in the church to imitate. And he makes this point explicitly twice in the letter of Thessalonians. In chapter 4, verse 18, he says to the Thessalonians, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So he tells the whole congregation, encourage each other. 
And then in 5, verse 11, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Or literally, he says, encourage each other and build each other up one on one. Now, there's a corporate element to the preaching of God's word, but there needs to be one-on-one elements when you're encouraging and exhorting and building each other up. And in chapter 5, after Paul says, encourage and build each other up one-on-one, he goes on to encourage the Thessalonian church to admonish each other, to encourage each other, to help each other, to be patient with each other. Paul is not setting up a community that's divided into the pastor and elders on one side who provide services, and the lay people on the other side who are passive consumers. The church is meant to be a community where everyone exhorts, everyone encourages, everyone urges each other to walk in a manner worthy of God. It's certainly the ministry of pastors, and it's certainly the calling of elders. But this is the calling for all members of the church. If you're a formal member of the church, you've become a member of this of Wiser Lake Chapel, you'll remember you were asked the following questions. You were asked to promise to work to understand the Bible. And what's the reason for that? So that you can build others up. And you promise to support this church in its worship and work. And that's not just code work for please give money. No, that's saying that you work in this church and that you worship in this church, and that you build each other up by participating in the worship and work of the church. As we conclude, let's just look for a moment at the three things that Paul says he did to act as a father. These are found in verse 12 there, encouraging, comforting, and urging. This first word, he says, I encouraged or exhorted each one. This term, in fact, is a recurring part of Paul's ministry. It's in almost all of his letters, Although, unfortunately, the word gets translated different ways in different passages. So in Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this word appeal is the same word used here. And in Romans 15, 30, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join with me in prayer. In 1 Corinthians 1, 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you would agree and there would be no division. And in Philemon, remember, Paul writes to this slave owner, Philemon, on behalf of Onesimus, trying to get him to set Onesimus free. And he says, for love's sake, I appeal to you. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So this first term, encouraging, it it can be appealing to someone. Appealing to them, encouraging them to live lives worthy of God. But Paul also uses this word to refer to encouraging people in difficult circumstances. He says he's, in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, he says, I sent Timothy to you to establish and to encourage you in your faith, that same term, so that no one may be moved by these afflictions. And in turn, Paul says that he was encouraged in his distress by the report of the Thessalonians' faith. This personal appeal is central to Paul's ministry. He not only practiced it himself, but he sent co-workers to practice it. He sent uh, Timothy to appeal to and encourage the Thessalonians. In Ephesians 6.22 and Colossians 4.8, Paul says, I'm sending you Tychicus uh, for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Again, this one-on-one encouragement. So we see from these variety of contexts, this first term, encourage, means to imply God's word one-on-one to individual circumstances 
encouraging individuals to live lives worthy of God. Now, friends, there's people in this room, if you're giving your life to others, if you're sharing your life with others, you know the bits of God's word that apply to people's lives better than anyone else in this room does to certain people who you're closer to than anyone else. And so you need to encourage them, to build them up. You're called to encourage them. I realize this is flying in the face of our culture. Uh, we, we got to have lunch with Abby uh, Drury this week and, and Abner, uh, uh, her, her boyfriend from Mexico City. And one of the interesting comments is they were saying, Mexico City, I think it's in the top 10 biggest cities in the world. And they said, it's a very lonely place. It's, e it's hard to meet people, even though you're in a massive city. And that's, we know that's true of our circumstances as well. You can live in town here and have close neighbors by, and maybe you don't even know their names. That we live in a very private culture that we don't necessarily even want to get to know the people around about us. And so this is flying in the face of that. But what Paul's calling us to is a community that we share ourselves with each other, that we encourage each other and build each other up. Okay, the second term, I think NIV says comforting, consoling, to encourage. Uh, Oh, sorry, one, one more comment on that first term of, of encouraging, that Paul specifically instructs elders to do this. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he tells all people, encourage the Timothy, that, sorry, encourage the timid. But then in 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells Timothy, uh, acting as an elder, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him, using that same word, as you would a father. Encourage younger men as brothers. Encourage older women as mothers. Encourage younger women as sisters. And Titus 1.9, Paul tells Titus that an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Or literally, he may be able to encourage in sound doctrine. So this is something all members of the church need to do, encourage each other. But particularly, it's the task of elders to encourage older men and younger men, older women, younger women, as we might family members, to encourage in sound doctrine to build up and teach. The second term then, console or comfort. Paul uses this term twice here in 1 Thessalonians, and the only other spot it's used in the New Testament is in John chapter 11. Now you may remember in John 11, Lazarus has died, and this term is used twice to say people were trying to console Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, who were grieving over the death of Lazarus. So Paul appeals to his fellow Christians, but he also says, console each other, comfort each other. Two reasons for that. First, being a Christian doesn't mean you're immune from life's sorrows. And so part of building each other up is consoling and comforting with the truth of the gospel. So as I alluded to earlier, we have people in our midst who are grieving even as their loved ones are, are dying. And they need to be encouraged and consoled and comforted. And we're all called to that task. But second, coming into a new community like the, this church, and remember the church in Thessalonica is only a year old or less than a year old, coming into this new community brings with it hardship. In 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul says, you became imitators of us in the Lord in spite of severe suffering and joy, you welcomed this message. He recognizes that at the same time, receiving the Christian message and joining the church as a community brings suffering on the one hand and joy on the other. Suffering because in some ways you're being marginalized from the former community you were part of. In Paul's day, it meant not going to the temple anymore to offer sacrifices. It meant being maybe ostracized in your business because some business dealings uh, took place in the pagan temples. 
It meant not swearing by gods that they didn't believe in anymore. So it meant being ostracized from the people around about you. And in certain respects, that's true of our culture as well. You are here on a Sunday morning instead of watching football, and that sets you apart from other people in our culture. And at the water cooler tomorrow at your job or wherever you're at having coffee in the morning, uh, people will ask you what you thought about the game, and you'll say, well, I was at church listening to a sermon, having a brunch, right? You're missing out on things. In some ways, you're isolated from the rest of your community. Certainly, our, uh, uh, one element that's constantly under assault now is the sexual ethics of the Christian community is different than that roundabout, and it's constantly criticized for that. And so there's an element that's needed of comforting and consoling people who realize that they're being pulled out of the community they used to live in, in some respects, and brought into a new community. And so there's some grief that comes with that. And then the third term Paul uses here, NIV says urging, and I think that's the best way to say it. Elsewhere, it's testifying, but it's, it's proclaiming the truth, the truth of God's word. It's pointing others to the tr- truth, to God's good news, and to testifying how it's worked out in your own life. And so we're to bear testimony to one another in the congregation. We're to, we're to share how God has been faithful to us. It's part of our calling. In conclusion, some of you are hearing about this kind of community and you think, I want to be part of a group that shares their lives with each other. Not a Facebook group that has superficial connections, not a Reddit message board where everybody's anonymous, not a bar where I sort of recognize people's faces but don't really know them. I want to be part of a true community where people actually share themselves with each other. A community where people are building each other up. Well, friends, if you hear that and that's what you want to be part of, it starts with the gospel. It starts with the good news of Jesus Christ. It starts with being called into the kingdom of God. And being called into the kingdom of God means serving the king, Jesus Christ. The king that we heard about in these epiphany readings. The king who rules over his kingdom. So if you want to be part of a community like this, friend, the first step is submitting to Jesus Christ as king. And if you're in that position and you say, I want to be part of a community like that, I don't know what that looks like, find me after the service. Find one of these elders. We'll talk with you one-on-one, as I've been talking about. We'll encourage you one-on-one in sound doctrine. We'll teach you. We'll lead you in prayer, submitting your life to King Jesus and incorporating you into this community. Others of you may be challenged this morning on this front. You've been a passive consumer in the church, waiting for other people to minister to you. Or maybe you say, you know what, no one ever greets me or says hi to me or knows my name, and I'm really upset about that, and this church isn't doing what it's supposed to. Well, maybe you're the one who needs to introduce yourself to someone else. Maybe you're the one who needs to start working on cultivating relationships with others. I'm going to share a story this morning, and Gretchen, maybe you can be mad at me later. I don't know, but I'll share it because Arnie's not here. Arnie shared with me that when they were on their honeymoon, I don't know how long ago that was, but I'll guess several years, (laughs) that they went to a church up in uh, Harrison Hot Springs, and uh, at that church, no one greeted them the entire time. And Arnie commented to me that he said it was the loneliest feeling that no one in this entire church greeted us. He said, I just thought that, I committed then. I'm never going to let someone come into my church and have that experience. And so we celebrated Pastor Bert and Jane last week, and certainly I don't mean to downplay their ministry, 
But certainly part of the reason Wiser Lake is the church it is today is because for 25 years or so, Arnie has greeted everyone who is unfamiliar that comes in this church. And I actually talked to Bert about this, and he said, he said, yeah, if I don't get a chance to meet a new person, I ask Arnie who they were, and he always knows. Okay, that's someone who, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago said, I'm not going to let people go unmet in church, and just made a commitment. It's not flashy. He probably would be upset if he knew I was sharing this story right now, and I actually didn't have this in my notes. It's off the cuff here, but it's not flashy. It's not something that you get an award for, but it's something that has built up this church. It's just that simple act of greeting people, getting to know new people every week. And so, friends, I challenge you this morning, if you have been a passive consumer in this church, make it your goal. You're going to share your life with others. And finally, to others of you, and I think especially of our two elders this morning, keep up the good work. Keep encouraging. Keep exhorting. Keep urging. Don't give up on this good work that you have already been doing for these last three years. Don't give up. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, I ask for these things for Wiser Lake Chapel. First, that we would delight in the gospel, that the gospel would flourish here in our midst, that the good news that Jesus Christ came to save us, that that would rule our minds and our hearts, that our desires would be shaped by that. But I ask second, Lord, that not only would we love Christ Jesus, our head, but that we would love his body, the church, that we would love this community. I ask, Lord, that you would make these people, Wiser Lake Chapel, gentle as mothers with each other and wise as fathers, speaking word, the right word in season, encouraging each other, exhorting each other, building each other up. Gracious Lord, give these people the boldness and courage, and myself, the boldness and courage to share our lives with each other, to be vulnerable with each other, but also, Lord, give us the grace to build each other up as your gospel flourishes in this church.